Good evening, everyone. The, they cry out in unison. The topic for this evening is adultery and fidelity. There are unfortunately unsavory parts in today's study, but there's also positive aspects, very strongly positive aspects as well. So given that there are unsavory aspects to it, you might say, why, why, do, we, why do we deal with it? Well, the weight that is given to this subject in Proverbs simply demands that we have to confront it. If, if you just go back a page from what we were reading, the whole of chapter 5 is devoted to this, about paying attention to wisdom so you may maintain discretion, verse 2, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Verse 8, keep to a path far from her, all these sorts of things. Verse 15, drink water from your own system, running water from your own well. Half of chapter 6 is devoted to this subject from verse 20 onwards about um, verse 24, keeping you from the immoral woman and from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty and, and so on. All of chapter 7 is devoted to this plus Proverbs dotted throughout the book so there's, there's a, a vast amount of the book of Proverbs is, is, is devoted to this if we think about the powerful forces in life, the things of the flesh, the things that, that, that drag the flesh you could probably identify two primary forces one associated with money and the things that come from wealth and the other associated with the things of sex and I think it does a disservice for us if we, if we maybe we dealt with one of them yesterday and for us not to deal with the other so taking a deep breath we'll uh, dive straight in chapter 7 and verse 6 this is a very visual description I, I don't know whether these first few chapters are David describing it for Solomon or Solomon describing it for her, his, his children but whoever the writer is at this point, he says, I, I looked out through the lattice work on the window and I saw this, this young man, this simple young man who lacked judgment and, and he, he was going just down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house and out comes this woman and she, she just reaches out to him, calls him in and, and what is it, verse 22? All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. I think one of the things that we first of all have to take in, into account is that this, this was written in order to provide advice to young men. And so that's why we get it very much from the young man's perspective of and, and we'll see this in a lot of the Proverbs. I think the principles, many of the principles, apply in both directions. So even though we'll continue the practice that's here in the Proverbs of, of putting it from the, the perspective of the one gender, let, let's not forget that it works the other way around. And you could quite easily, particularly in modern society, have a young woman and a man comes out who, who seduces her in exactly the same way. So let's not just think it works the one way around. It could work both ways around. But here we have the young man 
going as an ox to the slaughter like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare little knowing it will cost him his life. Um, Glance at Proverbs 25 verse 28. This is a general proverb but, but we'll see exactly how it applies in this kind of situation. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. What would a city that had no walls be like in those days? A group of houses and you have marauding bands. And the marauding bands just come in and destroy. And you try and rebuild and then the next band comes in and destroys. And and, and eventually there's nothing left. And that's why when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem, one of the first things he did was to rebuild the wall because it gives the city security. And so in Proverbs 25, 28, the proverb is telling us that that's exactly what self-control is to us. If you don't have self-control, you're like this unprotected city. And that's exactly what this young man was. He had no self-control. The woman comes out to him and the city is ravaged. And Proverbs and and various other scriptures, of course, are designed to give us these defenses, to build up these walls, to lead us to a position of self-control. And this chapter 7 that we were reading starts out with that point. My son, keep my words. Store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And call understanding your kinsmen. Why? They will keep you from the adulteress and from the wayward wife with her seductive words. And so the commands that were given, the words were given, the teachings that were given, saying bind them on your fingers, write them on your heart. That is, the the fingers, the things you do, have the very teachings of God there. And the things that you you feel, make sure that, that that's mediated through the teachings of God. And it protects you from the wayward wife. Let's consider some examples of, of the kind of defenses that should be built up. Come back to Genesis, to Joseph and the incident with, with Potiphar's wife. We don't need to spend a, a whole lot of time on this because it's a situation that's very familiar, I'm sure, to, to all of us. Joseph is there ruling over Potiphar's house, arranging all the affairs of Potiphar's house, and his wife, Potiphar's wife, is there, and she likes the look of Joseph. Handsome young man, no doubt. And I suspect that given Potiphar was a high official, I suspect his wife was probably quite a desirable woman in her own right. And so you've got a desirable woman and a handsome young man in a situation together and the wife Potiphar's wife is allowing her lust for this young man to grow and you find in Genesis 39 and verse 10 though she spoke to Joseph day after day he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her I think that's really powerful it's not that he said look we can spend all the time we like together it's just that we won't actually get into bed he said no that's too dangerous for me. 
not only will I not go to bed with you, but I will not even spend time alone with you. And so he refused not only to go to bed with her, but he refused to be with her, to spend time with her, because of this constant um, pulling from her for him to engage in sexual activity. And, and then verse 11, of course the dreaded day, when it turns out that he's in the house in his duties, none of the servants around, and she finally has the opportunity to have him alone and, and grabs hold of his cloak. Come to bed with me, she says. What does he do? He says, well, it would be better if we didn't. No, you know, we'll enjoy each other's company. And he doesn't do any of those things. He runs from the house. It's never a bad thing to flee from a sinful situation, from temptation. Running from temptation is not the act of a coward. Well, I guess in a sense it, it, it's the act of somebody who truly understands that, that he has weaknesses. But on, uh, when we, when we um, I think it was on Sunday in the exhortation when we were talking about the temptations of Jesus and the time when, when he was tempted to become king and the crowds are there after the feeding of the 5,000 and they're saying, you could become king, you could become king. And the disciples perhaps are saying, don't you hear what they're saying about you, Master? And he says to the disciples, go away, get into the boat, row into the storm. And he says to the crowd, leave me alone. And he goes up to the mountain by himself to pray. He runs away from the situation. He has to get out of the temptation situation. And, and, and Joseph is exactly the same. And I think what's even more powerful in the case of Joseph is the background that he has in his family. Just come back a couple of chapters and we'll just dip into a few things. Genesis 34, and you have the situation of his sister. His sister Dinah, verse 2, when Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw Dinah, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. The NIV has raped there. Other um, commentators suggest that it may not actually have meant that the, the word rape might not be appropriate. It might just be that he took her and perhaps even consensual on her part. Next chapter, chapter 35 and 22. While Israel, Jacob of course, was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah. And Israel heard of it. This is Joseph's older brother. Chooses to go to one of his... I mean, how, how, how does it work out? She, she's not his auntie. No, she's his kind of stepmother-ish thing. Certainly his brother's mother. Chooses to go and sleep with her. Or while Joseph is right down in Egypt, we see the attitude of his brother Judah... In chapter 38, the whole chapter is given over to Judah and Tamar and the situation, the, the lack of sexual control on the part of Judah. But we find Joseph, his faith and his commitment to God are giving him the city wall that he needs to withstand the temptations of Potiphar's wife. Now there is a proverb, Proverb 22 Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15 that might, if we're not careful, suggest that this is merely a problem of youth. Look at Proverbs 22 and verse 
15. It's the one that we were reading before. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it from him. If we, if we look at that with, in terms of verse 14 as well, the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is under the Lord's wrath will fall into it. We might think, well, it's the young that have the particular problem here with the mouth of the adulteress. And there is a sense in which that's true, but Judah shows us that it isn't simply a problem of youth. He is a man who has two grown-up sons. His sons have already had a wife, Tamar, and then died. And then the next one has Tamar as his wife and dies. So how old is Judah? In his 40s? In his 50s, perhaps. And here he is on a business trip, and he decides he sees a prostitute. And, and you might ask yourself, why does Tamar dress up as a prostitute? Does she, does she think, you know, this, this one time perhaps Judah might do it? Or, or does she know that it's his common practice? And so she takes advantage of that and indeed he falls. David, similarly, when he saw Bathsheba bathing, he was a mature man. Well, actually, he was an old man. He was mature in age. And so despite this kind of pairing between verses 14 and 15 of, of Proverbs 22, adultery is a danger to all. So when we get one of these adulterous situations that we're talking about, perhaps we have to ask ourselves, who's responsible? For example, take David and Bathsheba. And, and lots of, the record doesn't actually tell us much. But we have to ask ourselves, why was David looking and lusting? There is a sense in which it wasn't his fault. He normally went out to battle. But the army had started to say to him, look, you're too precious to us. We daren't risk you. Stay home while we go out and fight. And so David was, as it were, on enforced retirement from the army. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And there he is on the roof of the house and he looks and he lusts. But the other side of it is, maybe we should ask, why was Bathsheba bathing in a place where she could be observed? Was she partly complicit in this? And I'm not saying she was or she wasn't. Clearly David is, is identified as a man who, who goes against God, who sins in, in this circumstance. But perhaps Bathsheba also had a part to play in this. And I think the general situation is that it's not just one or the other. It's typically a situation of, of both, as they say in the, um, the, the little uh, proverb, as it were, not scriptural, but it takes two to tango. Chapter 23 and verse 28. Even though it takes two to be involved in a situation, nonetheless, it is often one or the other that actually plays the active role. And I think in chapter 20, 23 and verse 28, we see this. Uh, we'll read verse 26 for context. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes keep to my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit, and a wayward wife is a narrow well. A narrow well, you fall down it and you're trapped. You can't climb back up. Verse 28, like a bandit she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. 
So the, the, the work of the prostitute or the work of the wayward wife is to take a man that might otherwise be faithful and turn him into one who is now unfaithful. And so in this situation you've got the, the active um, force for sin is, is here the prostitute or the wayward wife. Of course, James tells us not to just say, oh, well, it wasn't my fault. The, the prostitute, she enticed me. It's like saying, I, 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 it's, the sin wasn't my fault. The devil, he made me do it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Chapter 27 of Proverbs, verse 8. Like a bird who strays from its nest is the man who strays from his home. The, the bird, he, he has some place to live. And now he, he strays, he flies away. And, and what happens when the bird is away from the nest and perhaps so far he can't get back? He's now in danger. Like a bird that strays from the nest is a man who strays from his home. So I think the, the scripture is telling us that in any circumstance like this, you cannot simply blame one party or the other party. The fault is with both. Now let's take this proverb we've just read. Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home and join it with the neighboring one, the one just before. He who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. Interpret that in the light of the following one, about straying from home. He who is full loathes honey. If you've eaten as much as you possibly eat, and then somebody offers you this, this beautiful, rich dessert you end up saying, oh man, I wish I had room to eat it, but there's no way I can eat it. Uh, or, or it might even be, it just, you know, it's, it perhaps is even repulsive, even though it's beautiful. It, it, it comes over as repulsive because you, you simply couldn't take it. But he says, in contrast, if you're hungry, if you really haven't eaten for a long time, then even something that's, that you normally would think of as horrible, you will take it and, and you'll eat it. And, and the, the analogy here, I think, is, is very clear. That there is this thing out there that's bitter, that if we are in some sense hungry, that thing which is bitter may taste sweet. And come back to Proverbs 5, and we'll see that adultery, or the adulterer, is, is described in exactly this terms. Interestingly, both of these uh, pictures are used here of her. Verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. So we're in the situation of this bitterness of the adulteress. But at first it might seem to be sweet, because we're in some sense hungry. Let's move over to Corinthians, first letter to Corinthians, and see how Paul picks up exactly this theme and addresses it. The Corinthian church had written to him and said, 
You know what? It's probably good for people not to marry, isn't it? What, what, what do you think about this? And so he's responding to this, and he says, yes, there is a sense in which it's good not to marry. But verse 2, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. That is, having a pairing of a husband and wife is a good protection against immorality, is what Paul says. Chapter 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think it's a very powerful lesson. He's saying, not only should you be married, but you should see that you each have a responsibility to help the other not be overcome by lust. That is the wife. You should recognize that your body partly belongs to your husband and, and you should fulfill your duty with your body to your husband. And husbands, likewise, you should use your body in the same way with your wife. You have a responsibility to each other, is what he's saying. And don't deprive each other. Because if you, if you do, then you, in a sense, might as well not be married for the protection against immorality. So you have a responsibility to each other. And I think, you know, we, we, it's, it's very clear language. We should take, take it to heart. It's almost as if, well, if, if we put it all together about he who is full loathes honey but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet in the context of a, of a marriage what, what the scripture is saying to us is that the best defense against immorality is for a husband and a wife to be full of each other and I don't just mean sexually though clearly Corinthians is telling us that but also spiritually to, to just be absorbed with one another. To honor and praise each other. Husbands, when was the last time you explicitly honored and praised your wife? Wives, when was the last time you explicitly honored and praised your husband? There's a, there's a beautiful word that you can use for marriage. And it's the word cherish. Cherish. Husbands, do you cherish your wives? Wives, do you cherish your husband? In, in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 23, there are some things, according to Agur son of Jacob, there are some things that the earth trembles under, that it cannot bear, and one of them, Number three, in verse 23, is an unloved woman who is married. Verse 21, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. Number one, a servant who becomes king. Two, a fool who is full of food. Three, an unloved woman who is married for a maidservant who displaces her mistress. If you have a woman who is not loved, 
but is, is in a marriage situation, the earth trembles under that. It can't bear it. And it's no accident that Paul, when talking to husbands in Ephesians, says, Husbands, love your wives. And that's not saying, Husbands, have a good feeling about your wives. It's exercise the love. Develop the love you have and exercise the love that you have for your wives. We often quote those verses talking about wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And, and that's a, a very powerful message. But, but husbands, take note of the corresponding action that, that is called upon you. In fact, let's just look at it. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.22, as I say, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour, as the church submits to Christ. So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. There's a tremendous picture about the marriage bond being given here, of the relationship between the wife and her husband. And, and I think sometimes we, we slightly... Uh, muddle that to think that this is talking about the relationship between sisters and brothers in the ecclesia. It's not. Rachel has a head that is in this room and it's me. It's not any of the other brothers. And likewise, none of the other sisters are to submit to me as their head. This is talking about a marriage relationship. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But now what's the other side? Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Oh, that's pretty easy. Say the guys, we can love our wives. Look at what it means. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body and so the same sacrificial love that Christ showed for us as the bride of Christ, Paul is saying, husbands, that is your responsibility to your wives. Do you sacrifice yourself, husbands, for your wives? That's what it means to love your wives. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. An unloved woman who is married. When we were talking about Proverbs 27, about he who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet. We're using there the language of, of hunger to talk about sexual feeling. And, and this, is, this is very common in, in society, that, that, that we use this kind of hunger language to describe how people feel about one another. But look at what chapter 6 says about it in the context of hunger and adultery. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Now this is talking about physical hunger, where you are at the, at the edge of death. 
So you don't despise somebody who is starving and steals in order to remain alive. Even so, says the Proverbs, verse 31, if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But, verse 32, a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Do you notice the contrast that is being made? If you've got real hunger then even though you're punished for your theft, people may understand it. Not so with adultery. That is, adultery is theft that is not driven by hunger. I have needs, you say. No, you don't. You may have desires, even evil desires, but they are not needs. You need to eat to be alive. You don't need sex to stay alive. It's important that we make this distinction because the scripture talks about it that adultery is something which shows simply a lack of judgment. It shows a giving in to the the ways of the flesh, the evil desires of the flesh. And so it's something that that we absolutely have to fight against within ourselves. I'm not talking about identifying others around and saying, oh, adulterer there, adulterer there. Peter was talking earlier on in the week about a lot of people express that they they have to control feelings of lust. And we are called upon to control those kinds of feelings. To recognize that that's the call of the flesh. And, and, And that's natural desire, but desire gives birth to sin. And we have to stop it at the point of desire. And so Paul gives advice in Timothy about this particularly to do with ecclesial life and how Timothy, as a young man, um, perhaps in his early 30s, was to deal uh, in the ecclesia. Listen to these words in 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Young men, young brethren, and from that I can, from me downwards, I still count myself as young. How do you treat the sisters in the ecclesia? The younger women in the ecclesia, do you treat them as if they were your sister in the flesh? And do you treat them with absolute purity? Consider the situation in, in, with Ammon and Tamar David's son Ammon and and his half-sister Tamar he lusted after her he allowed his feelings to build up in his mind and and he worried about it until he he, he was sick physically sick because he he, he was just struggling with this and and allowing it to to play out in his mind and then wanted the fulfilment of all the fantasies that came out in his mind and then eventually He arranged a situation where she was there and he took her. He abused the trust that she had in him. She came to him because she thought that he was her brother. And he abused the trust. Now put that in an ecclesial context. And brothers, when you're dealing with the sisters who have this level of trust in you, 
who may be dealing with you thinking that you are their brother and of course what happened after that was that Ammon discovered that the feelings in him I was going to say didn't run deep they ran deep but they were of a different nature and that lust then fulfilled itself in hatred and that became even worse than the superficiality of trust I think we have to ensure that we avoid both ways of thought which are in temptation and situations that are temptation situations like Joseph he was never alone with Potiphar's wife if he could help it he made sure that he stayed out of that kind of situation and I think we have to examine ourselves and, and maybe I am speaking particularly to the younger brethren but also to the sisters we have to examine ourselves to find out are we careful about taking ourselves out of danger situations or do we put ourselves in danger situations a lot of ecclesias have the practice that if there needs to be some counseling done that it's never a brother counseling a sister because that is a recipe for disaster and so brothers we have to be honest with ourselves not merely examine ourselves let's be honest with ourselves do we find ourselves spending time with a sister who is not our wife and starting to have feelings for that sister if we do we need to start doing something about it it's not sufficient to say yes I can restrain myself let's go back to chapter 6 of Proverbs and verse 25 the context is verse 23 these commands are a lamp this teaching is a light and the corrections of discipline are the way to life keeping you from the immoral woman verse 25 do not lust in your heart after her beauty we've read that somewhere else haven't we of course this is what Jesus said you've heard that it was said do not commit adultery but I say unto you whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart now we sometimes take that to say Jesus is raising the bar he's showing us that sin is, is even easier and worse than we thought it was I don't think he's actually trying to say that I think what Jesus is saying is he's taking the analysis in James which goes desire, sin, death and he's saying look don't think that you can just stop that process at the position of sin if you want to avoid sin then avoid the desire as well that is if you allow yourself in your mind to commit adultery with someone then what what, what protection do you have if you suddenly find yourself in exactly the circumstance that you've been fantasizing about because you have piece by piece taken down the barriers taken down the walls and now it feels natural and so Jesus says don't do it in your heart and I think the, the, the reason is so that you actually keep those barriers in place do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes as soon as you start doing that 
you're in danger. Verse 27. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Just a a very picture. And what it asks us to say is, we're, we're holding these coals and how close do you think you can get them? And, and is it like a game? Oh, I can get it a little bit closer before I get burned. Or maybe a little bit closer. And, and the whole picture is, do you realize how ridiculous that game is? Why not just get rid of those coals and then make sure that you won't be burned? It's, I think that there's a, a, the parallel with Cain. Do you remember what, what the angel said to Cain in, in chapter 4 of Genesis when, when Cain was angry that his, um, his offering was not accepted? Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must master it. And it's the same here, brothers and sisters. Sin desires to have us. It's trying to get at us. It's the flesh. The flesh wants to exert itself. It wants to control us. And one of the ways it tries to control us is through the natural feelings of the flesh. And so we have, to, we, we have to be very careful. And we have to try to, within ourselves... I'm, I, I'm all the time talking about what is it that's in my heart. I'm giving you the exhortation about myself. But there are some practical things that we can do collectively to try to address some of the issues that that arise here. And um, Paul addresses some of them in Timothy. 1 Timothy 2 verse 9. He's just talked about he wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer. Not just any hands. Holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2, he says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. You claim to be worshipping God, sisters? Then dress in a similar way. We have freedom in Christ. Absolutely, we have freedom in Christ. But Paul makes it so clear that our freedom in Christ should never be at the expense of somebody else. It should never be to provide a stumbling block for somebody else and the meeting and when we get together is certainly not a time to show off our bodies and this isn't just women this is men as well how do you dress young men do you dress in a way that you hope will catch the eyes of the women but I think the issue probably is stronger with the women young sisters you have to be particularly careful how you dress. What is the message that you're giving to the brothers? What is the effect that you're having on the brothers? And you may not realize. 
And parents, you can play a tremendously powerful role here with your daughters as they come to an age where they need to be helped and educated. I think the context that Timothy is in, I'm sure the context is, is Ephesus, but as soon as we think about Ephesus, we realize, we remember what was going on in Ephesus. There was this great big idol to Diana, to, or Artemis as she's called elsewhere. Greek or versus Roman. Artemis of the Ephesians, Diana of the Ephesians, this fertility goddess. And you would worship this goddess by going into the temple and, and participating with the temple prostitutes. And so when Paul writes to the Ephesians, I think he may even be alluding to this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it and the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Paul, I think, is, is trying to make sure that no, no semblance of that religious immorality makes it into the church here in Ephesus. The ecclesia does not benefit from this. It's a way to destroy it. Just look at Revelation 2 and you'll see what was going on in the Ecclesia there. The Ecclesia that thought itself so, so safe, so secure. Here it is in Thyatira in chapter 2 and verse 20. It is a good Ecclesia, verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. You're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, says the Lord Jesus Christ, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Thyatira was not a long way from Ephesus. That kind of religious prostitution is there in the middle of the ecclesia. And Paul is trying to address this and keep it out of, uh, out of all of our ecclesias. Unless we think that was just a situation there for, for Ephesus and it doesn't apply to us today, take note that the whole of secular society to today is essentially the same as the religious worship of Artemis. The idea of, of using bodies to sell products, of using sexuality to make progress, it's all there. We live in the same society and we have to protect just as strongly about getting it into the ecclesia. So that's one thing that we can do to, to help control the situation for one another. Just be careful about how we dress and how we act with one another. There's another thing that we can do as individuals and this is epitomized by the things Jesus was saying in Matthew 5 where he says don't allow lust to, to, to be there in your eyes, in your heart. Don't, don't commit adultery in your heart. Keep the stamp on desire at that point. Job recognizes it as well in, in chapter 31. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He knows that it starts at that point. 
make a covenant with your eyes that is make an agreement with your eyes that you won't do it verse 9 if my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door then may my wife grind another man's grain and may other men sleep with her for that would have been shameful a sin to be judged it takes thought it takes preparation and more than anything else it takes commitment we have to realize that it is important to God the way that we live our lives the, the attitude we bring to our marriages the attitude we bring in our relationship to one another it's not a casual thing we have to realize how important it is and we have to then make the commitment to ourselves, to our God to our spouse that this is the way that we're going to live our lives in chapter 31 of Proverbs <coughs> King Lemuel's mother has essentially two lessons for him lesson number one is defend the rights of the needy as a king defend the rights of the needy and number two lesson number two my son be careful about women and it's not just a negative thing watch for the bad women it's a positive thing as well find the good women so that's the whole whole issue that, that, he, that she's going here and so we have this beautiful poem about women uh, uh, the wife of a noble character is the heading in my bible from verse 10 onwards worth far more than, than rubies and I was astonished uh, uh, a couple of years ago to discover that, um, uh, that Rachel was completely intimidated by this. She, she would read this chapter and say, this, this is just ridiculous, there's no way that I can live up to this chapter. And I tell you, I was astonished, because I had read this chapter and I thought, how tremendous it is that I have a wife that completely fulfills this, the, the, the aspects of, of this um, uh, the beautiful poem about the wife of, of noble character. And so sisters, I, I encourage you not to think of this as, as something that's unattainable, but think of it as, as just a guide to, to show you how, how active you should be in your marriage. It's not about being chained to the kitchen sink. This is true liberation. Look at what this wife does. She goes out, she buys and sells, she arranges the affairs of the household, she does this, she does that. And her husband looks at her with awe and wonder. Many women, verse 29, do noble things, he says, but you surpass them all. And he's impressed by her. He's impressed by what she achieves. <coughs> So I think it's, a, it's a, a, a description of a great partnership that's supposed to be there. Now look at verse 29 and 30. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. He carries on. This is the husband talking. Charm is deceptive. Sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that your beauty... It's not going to last very long. That charm is superficial and deceptive. But that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 
Do you believe that or do you believe the world which says exactly the opposite? Just let me read um, one proverb. Stay here in 31. One proverb is 11.22 which says the following. I'll just read it to you. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Brothers, do you believe it? Do you believe that charm is deceptive? Do you believe that beauty is fleeting? But do you believe that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised? If you believe it, do you act upon it? Or do you flock around those whose beauty is outward rather than those whose beauty is inward? What are you saying, brothers, to the sisters out there? How are you encouraging them to act? Are you praising them and, 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 and flocking to them because you see that spark of spirituality? That, that reflection of the Lord? You see, the whole way in which we develop our relationships comes from the Lord. Look at chapter 19, Proverbs chapter 19. Verse 14. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You don't get it from your parents, your, your, your wife. Now, interestingly, this is written even in a day when they had arranged marriages. Even in that day, he's saying, if you have a prudent wife, it's something that you've received from the Lord. Compare it with the previous proverb connected that. A foolish son is his father's ruin and a quarrelsome wife is like constant dripping. This is the contrast with the prudent wife that is from the Lord. So the question is how much do you pray about your future wife or your future husband? Those of you who are not married. What commitment have you already made to God about it? If, God's, if, if, the, if the scripture says that to receive a prudent wife is from the Lord and, and by analogy it's to receive a, an appropriate husband, a good husband is also from the Lord what are you doing about that? What are you asking of him? And what commitment are you making about the way in which you'll behave? You see you can either have a relationship which is positive and building up and developing or you can have exactly the opposite as is described in verse 14 we see, uh, chapter 14 verse 1 we see both sides in this proverb the wise woman builds her house but with her own hands the foolish one tears hers down you're going to have a wise woman or a foolish woman are you going to have a wise man or a foolish man the one that builds the house or the one that tears it down? Now, we're, we're out of time, but if, if the chairman will permit me just a couple more minutes, I'd like to just step aside and, and address a different topic. We've talked about the relationships that we have and so on. But we have to ask the question, what if God chooses not to provide you with a partner? What then? 
and, and unfortunately, this is a, a, an area where both from a society point of view and from a, an ecclesial point of view, we're not very good. We're, we're, we're fine to talk, we, we often talk about relationships and so on, but we often don't talk about the single life. Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 19. I'll just read it to you. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. If God chooses not to provide a partner for you, that is, if the only opportunities you have for partnership are those people that would lead you away from the Lord, then what Christ is calling you to is to renounce marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. And that's a hard calling. But it's one that if you are in a situation that you don't yet know whether you'll be married or not, you should be praying about. You should be praying that if this is the path that the Lord is going to lead you down, that he will give you strength and support and that he will lead you to the kingdom. See, I think it's important that we don't just automatically assume that we have to have a partner. See, what Paul was talking about in Corinthians 7 when we were there was that actually it is good for a man not to marry. There is a sense in which it is better not to have a partner. Why? Well, he says, if you have a partner, you have to worry about the needs of your partner. And there are some times when the Lord will call you to something, but when you have a partner, you're not able to respond to the needs of the Lord because you've made a commitment to a partner. And he says, sometimes it's better just to be able to respond to the Lord and to be able to do the things the Lord requires and indeed he says I wish that all men were as I am but each man has his own gift from God one has this gift and another that so there is a, uh, there is a time that some of us are called to a situation where, where we're just where, where we, we're not as it were weighed down with a partner in this life and we therefore have much more freedom to, um, to, to, to serve the Lord. And it's important that we don't just say, I'm so desperate to have a partner that I will just go out and get whatever partner I can. Um, a final proverb in Proverbs 12 verse 4, The wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. And so if you're so insistent that you're going to have a partner, you might end up with one that acts like decay in your bones. And you'll come back to God and you'll say, how I wish I listened to the word of instruction that was there in your scriptures, that I was able to take the message that the Lord was calling me to. So there are circumstances in which we may not have a partner. There are other circumstances in which we may have a partner. In all these situations, the Lord calls us to faithfulness. And it's a high calling, and it's a hard calling. It's not something that comes naturally. But it's something that requires support from each other within a marriage. It requires support from our brothers and sisters. And, and more than anything else, 
it requires the help of our Lord God. We need to pray about it. We need to think about it. We need to make commitments to him.